Hi there, you're listening to the podcast version of 3CR's Monday Breakfast Show. Catch us live every Monday at 7am at 855 on your AM dial, streaming 3CR on the TuneIn app or at 3cr.org.au. Enjoy the show! 3CR acknowledges the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You are listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR, 855am on your radio dial or streaming at 3cr.org.au. Now this weekend I travelled out to the picturesque Werribee River or a picturesque part of the Werribee River to talk to the Werribee Riverkeeper, a man named John Forrester. And this is what I found out. I'm here with John Forrester, who's the Werribee Riverkeeper, and we're standing or sitting just near the Werribee River. Aside from being the Riverkeeper, John is also a member of Rivers of the West, a group uh, calling for increased protection of major waterways in Melbourne's western suburbs, being the Maribyrnong and Werribee Rivers. John, have the Werribee and Maribyrnong Rivers been treated poorly historically? Yes, the Maribyrnong particularly has had a long history of pollution, uh, being that, of course, and we were all guilty of this in, uh, 100 years ago, we just put our waste out into Mother Nature and didn't think about it. So the Maribyrnong particularly has a history of that. The Werribee, not so much industrial, but perhaps over farming, and in the last few years, the same as the Maribyrnong, the last few decades, of course, urbanisation has come along. So we are pouring our hard surface stormwater out into the rivers very quickly after rain. Within 10 minutes or 20 minutes, the water from here, for example, is in the river after rain. And that's carrying into the river the things like the heavy metals off car brakes and so forth, so rubber off tyres, uh, dropped oil and so forth into the river pretty quickly. If you consider the whole of Melbourne, for example, um, you have all of that land area, so those hundreds of thousands of hectares, which originally, when rain fell, absorbed the water. It stayed in the land. But now that we've built so much housing, so many roads, so many footpaths, and they all have hard surfaces, and most homes these days, particularly in the newer suburbs, are small size, small blocks, so most of the footprint on the block is covered hard, area and the water can't soak in anymore so it runs rapidly into stormwater areas so that of the 100% area of Melbourne probably 80% of it is now hard surface area and so 80% of the rainfall now goes straight into our rivers. What are some of the other modern day threats to this river system? I must say that standing here it's quite a beautiful setting but I'm sure it's not like this all the way along the river and its various tributaries. There are planning issues attached with this, Jack. Uh, Things like not allowing enough distance between housing and the river itself for the river to have a healthy eco-cycle. For example, further downstream from here on the Werribee, there are spots whereby the public, for example, can only access a narrow point of about four metres because there are industrial buildings built up to about... uh, three metres one side of the footpath and on the other side of the footpath about three metres of land exists but then it plummets down to the river so the public let alone mother nature only has a narrow space to 
take advantage of, look at, enjoy the river, which we're doing here. So you don't have this sort of outlook further down the river here in Werribee. Uh, that's particularly down near the Maltby Bypass. And that, of course, is bad for the town because as you drive on the Maltby Bypass and look up river into Werribee, all you see is an industrial look. And so you start seeing the negative impact socially of what we've done in our planning to rivers and to human beings. So you can't get the maximum nice greenage, uh, the nice healthy aspects. You can't have the mental relaxation and so on. You really should in lovely natural places. So what kind of protections exist now and what kind of protections are you and the fellow members of Rivers of the West looking for? The currently now organisations like Melbourne Water, EPA and so on have really reacted, particularly in the last 20 years or so, to modern needs. But what they have now, of course, is to face up to the legacy of the years gone. So some of the drainage and some of the stormwater pipes and so on across Melbourne aren't in good condition and there's a heck of a lot of backlog of works being undertaken to try and improve that. Uh, science uh, studies by people like Melbourne University, for example, have shown that the rivers and waterways, creeks and so on, uh, have lost a lot of biodiversity, particularly invertebrates and so on, because of the, the lack of quality of stormwater that's still going into our waterways. And those sorts of things impact on, say, platypus, which live on invertebrates and insects that are in the waterways. So if the stormwater from these modern places goes out and it's not in good condition, then of course it impacts on other aspects of the river. What does a really well-functioning river system look like? If we could have the natural flows, if we could have native fish back, which we don't have here at all, we have small little native fish, but no longer can we fish in here where uh, people did 50 years ago here in Werribee itself and they could pull out native blackfish, a good fighting fish, a good eating fish, they no longer exist here. They live only up in the Werribee Gorge, which is uh, 50 kilometres north of here. So that's a common story across Australia, uh, southeastern Australia, particularly with the carp having taken over our waterways. Uh, they're everywhere in wetlands and lakes and so on. And so to restore the river back to its natural condition, uh, where perhaps it was 200 years ago, to allow the vegetation to grow, to stop mowing the grass that we see left, right and centre on main waterways because people are worried about snakes. But we can still allow snakes their right to exist and we can still enjoy what they do because they do keep insects and uh, animals in check. So just a good natural return to what Mother Nature intended its river to be would be the ideal. Recently there were new protections given to the Yarra and its tributaries. What are you asking for to protect the Werribee River and the Maribyrnong River? Yeah, the Yarra River Act was passed there at the start of 2017 and within that, in the action plan, there were a couple of recommendations which, which specifically named the Werribee and Maribyrnongs and all of the issues we've just talked about. And so our program, Rivers of the West, is really a, a, a momentum-building exercise so that we will gain the intent of the Yarra River Act out this way. It may be that we can't have a Werribee River Act or a Maribyrnong River Act, but what we can have, for example, are improved planning, improved collaboration between, say, municipalities, uh, declare the Werribee River a linear park, uh, all cooperate in the same ways, because there are problems which are occurring in each of the major municipalities on both the Maribyrnong and the Werribee, whereby, with some collaboration, with some cooperation, 
and some outside funding, such as from DELP and state government and so forth, then we can do some improvements. So they're the sort of things we're after. You look at the success of something like Friends of the Merry Creek over in North Melbourne, what they've been able to do with that area. What kind of benefits do you, you know, you're talking about investment, what kind of benefits will improving the river system deliver to these communities? Well, improving it will do a whole lot of things. The Merry Creek Management Committee is an excellent example of how a, uh, a group of locals gathered all the energy and momentum and passion they could and they took advantage of all of the initiatives that were around over the years and they built up their own workforce and so on. So the local groups, which if supported, uh, can, can use that Mary River Management Committee as an example. For example, the Werribee River Association is attempting to bring itself into the modern era and gain these sorts of advantages and uh, develop its capability. So these sorts of groups can gain momentum and can support the, the community which is looking for things like uh, better access to the waterways, greater livability, which is a, a word used now in various forums and by Melbourne Water itself and so on when they're talking about other aspects of the river. It's not just the, the environment we're looking at here. We're looking at better health for human beings. We're looking at economics, such as in jobs. Uh, we're looking at things like the effect of the rivers, the waterways, creeks and so on, on the Port Phillip Bay, which in turn affects fisheries, which in turn affects jobs again and uh, human health and so on. We don't necessarily, well, we don't want fish to have high levels of mercury or anything else in that. So we do need to all work together. So the community stands to gain a lot out of rivers of the West. Well, thank you, Hips, for talking to Monday Breakfast and all the best. Good, Jack. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Cheers. RACR, the perfect companion in your car on your road trip. You can stream radio straight into your car. Straight in. Like 3CR gets streamed straight into your car. Keeping you company. No matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll have something interesting in your ear. That's correct. And you can Bluetooth it and you can just stick it right into you. Is any kind of attachment you want? To subscribe to 3CR, unwaged is $35. Yes. yes. Waged? $75. And solidarity? $150. That's pretty reasonable to help keep 3CR on air. Call 3CR 9419 and... Subscribe. Subscribe today. Subscribe now. When I'm on a road trip, I want to take 3CR with me and listen to rock and roll. You are listening to the 3CR Monday Breakfast. Um, Over the past five years, the number of people presenting to homelessness services in Victoria due to eviction has more than doubled to over 43,000 people. And in that same time, Victorian stamp duty revenue has almost doubled to $6.57 billion. In its state budget submission, the Council to Homeless Persons is recommending that those funds be put towards social housing. And on the line now, we have the uh, Council to Homeless Persons Policy and Communications Manager, Kate Colvin, to tell us more about that recommendation. Kate Colvin, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Um, Hi, glad to be with you. I'm happy to have you here with us. So this is a topic that we've got a lot of interest around. Um, A lot of our listeners either living in um, community housing, social housing, public housing, all those different types of housing. Um, So just to get us started, how do you at the CHP connect the housing boom to a rise in number of people experiencing homelessness? What's the dynamic? Well, um, one of the things that's been happening in Victoria is 
you know, in, in many ways a good news story. So we've had lots of um, growth in employment, lots of new jobs created. The economy's doing really well. And so that's great if you're sort of riding that wave, if you get one of those new jobs or, you know, um, maybe get a pay rise or what have you. But the, one of the challenges is when, you know, the economy's doing well like that is that people who are not riding that wave, who haven't been able to get a job or are not in a position where they can work, actually, you know, it can make things tougher because um, the people who are doing well when you go out into the private rental market, you know, it's a competitive kind of situation, the private rental market. So you turn up for an opening to inspection. There's 20 other people there and the landlord is going to pick the person with the best kind of income, the best, um, you know, prospect. So if you're struggling, that makes it, in a way, even harder if there's more people who are doing well. So that's, I think, really um, has been the driver, some of that um, success. And it's also meant that there's more people coming to Victoria from interstate. So, you know, there's um, growing population. So more pressure on the rental market. And that's made um, the cost of rental go up. And, you know, in Victoria, like actually other places in Australia, you know, the rent rents are going up faster than people's incomes and particularly people's incomes if they're on a Centrelink income. So it's the situation is um, people just can't, you know, they can't keep up with the rent and um, if they lose their property, then they're faced with that competitive um, situation that I was um, talking about before. So what we're seeing is increased number of people evicted, often because they can't afford the rent and um, those people, instead of, you know, maybe 10 years ago, they would have been able to quickly find another place. They're really struggling to find another place. And so that's where we're saying, look, we just need a lot more low-cost um, places for people to rent, and, and social housing is a great way of delivering that. Absolutely. Now, um, we'll talk a bit more about the CHP's proposal in a moment, but I just want to ask a general question. Do you, Does the Council of Homeless Persons make a distinction between government-owned public housing and um, social housing, as you, as you call it, just just so people know our terms. Yeah, sure. So look, we um, um, we sort of support both, but we you know would really love to see the government invest more in public housing, and obviously for people coming out um, who are coming through homelessness services, um, you know, getting into public housing is often uh, the best. Uh, opportunity for them and the wait lists are very, very long. Um, for some people, you know, community housing um, works really well, but, you know, obviously community housing, um, you know, does tend to span a larger set of income groups. So while some community housing providers, you know, house people on really low income, um, others are a little more oriented towards um, maybe low-wage workers or people on a slightly higher income. So we're looking at $6.57 billion of Victorian stamp duty. It's raised quite a lot recently. We've been talking about the housing boom, so that's um, so that's a, quite a windfall for the Victorian state, the state government, the Andrew state government. Um, how do you see that money best being used in social housing? Yeah, look, and what I sort of didn't explain before is, mm-hmm. is probably just that the, the way that the stamp duty revenue is also a product of that economic growth so it's like you know the same thing that I was talking about increased people coming to Victoria and pushing up rental prices also pushing up prices in the um, home ownership market so um, because stamp duty is kind of a proportion of the price 
um, there's been more turnover, but there's also higher prices. So there's there's that increased stamp duty revenue. Look, uh, uh, what we're um, saying is that in many ways that increased stamp duty revenue is a is a product of housing becoming more unaffordable because it is um, an increase that's a direct consequence of the fact that prices are going up. And so, you know, uh, the pattern that I was describing before of that economic growth and Victoria doing well, meaning that people who are struggling are doing even worse, we're saying that those resources should be reinvested because in many ways they're the wages of, you know, um, the housing price boom. And so um, that housing price boom um, uh, is good for some. It's worse for people who are struggling. So, you know, we're, we're sort of creating, suggesting that direct feedback loop to make sure that, um, people are not struggling um, so much in the rental market because, of course, it's just so important that people have somewhere to live. You know, without it, you can't really get anything else done in your life. It is really important, Kate. It's Jackson here. I just wanted to jump in and ask, talking about affordable housing for people who are not working or are on a Centrelink payment, do you want to see that if there is an investment in social housing, I hope that there is, or public housing, should that rental cost be capped at a percentage of the Centrelink income? Is that the only way to truly make it affordable for people who are not working or struggling in and out of work? Well, I guess that's what's so um, useful about um, social housing is that rents are capped at a proportion of people's income. Because the problem that we find if you just create more rental housing in the private market, then that um, doesn't the housing doesn't generally go to people who are on the lowest income because of that competitive process. So whoever's doing best is always going to kind of get the property in the private rental market. So the thing that's so useful about social housing is because it's targeted to people on low incomes, it means you create new housing and then um, the people who most need it will get it. Um, and um, because, you know, another thing that we find... You know, when people are struggling to get into home ownership, one thing that they'll often do is rent what we call rent down, like rent a place that's cheaper than they might otherwise be able to pay so that they can save some money for their mortgage. And But that you know, tends to mean that they're displacing someone who, you know, would otherwise have gotten into that property because it's all they could afford. So, yeah, so social housing that's targeted at low-income earners and which is, rent is capped at an amount that people can afford so that um, they can, you know, have money left over for other things that are essential in their life. Now, the um, the diverting that $6.57 billion um, uh, would be something that I, I imagine basically every public housing advocate and resident to support. Well, we've heard criticisms of the Andrew State Government before on the show by people like the Public Housing Defence Network and Victorian Public Tenants Association for the government's plan to sell off nine housing estates in the name of renewal. And so given this background um, toward privatisation, do you have hope that the state government will act on your recommendation? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the um, so the the projects that you're referring to is one part um, of a sort of broader agenda. So we've um, we've been advocating to the state government that they expand social housing for a long time. I suppose this is the sort of our last, you know, um, or our most recent um, foray into that space, um, and they have committed to. Um, an additional 5,000 properties over the next five years. So we're saying that there needs to be 14,500 properties, so 14,500 properties over the next five years. So we're 
we're calling for that stamp duty revenue to go into an additional 9500 on top of the 5000 that have already been committed. And I think that the, the project that you're referring to um, is um, in the order of a couple of hundred of those um, 5,000 properties that have been committed. So it's quite a sort of small proportion. So, yeah, we, we, we have... Um, uh, we hope that we will be successful in this campaign. Um, but obviously, you know, we are competing when we call for social housing against other priorities in health and education. So, you know, it's um, always great to have... Um, it talks about in the media because that, of course, you know, encourages people to think about this priority... Um, when they're also thinking about those other priorities. Mm. Now, just moving on, something that people have also been talking about in the media, well, not very much, but they still have, is the um, state government announcing a homelessness and rough sleeping action plan. Um, can you make any comment on the CHP's assessment of this plan? Well, um, we're very positive about the plan because it's something that we've been campaigning on for a very long time. So, you know, in the main, I think we spend a lot of time talking about you know, people need housing to get out of homelessness. But for people who've been um, sleeping rough for a long time or people who are really struggling with health issues in their lives like mental health, you know, there's often people also need support to, once they get into housing, to kind of um, really settle in and um, and have the support they need to improve their health, to get connected to other services that they might need and um, to be connected into the community. So um, one of the challenges is that for, for the homeless sector is that so there is some support funded, but it's really short periods of support. So someone comes into a homeless service, they get some support to try and connect them to housing. It takes so long to get them connected to housing. By the time they are connected to housing, the support's run out. So what this um, program um, that the government's funded, the Rough Sleeping Initiative does, is it provides that ongoing and flexible support. So rather than waiting for someone who's rough sleeping to come into a homeless service, because um, often people you know, might not... Um, uh, see that as something that they want to do. Um, the the program will fund workers who'll go out and, and connect with people wherever they are, and then um, directly connect them without them having to sort of come into a service to um, a housing opportunity, and then provide that support so they can be linked. You know that worker would help them connect in with um, a GP and um, mental health worker if they need one, or, or um, other services. So, um, and then, you know, help them move in to the property and then help them um, with any support they might need once they're there. I've been speaking to Kate Colvin, the Policy and Communi uh, Communications Manager of the Council to Homeless Persons. We've been talking about the CHP's state budget submission recommending that Victoria's growing stamp duty revenue should be put towards social housing. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. No worries. Thank you. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR 855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important, the spirit of community is the most important thing, so subscribe. Up next, we have our regular segment, Over the Wall, uh, which is a look at social support and the barriers that exist for those who most need it. Uh, so this is this week's episode. 
My name is John Guerra. I'm the president of the Frankston sub-branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. John, can you start by describing your experiences of being homeless in, in Frankston? My experiences uh, being homeless in Frankston were very difficult. The treatment that I received by a lot of the agencies was very lacking at the start. It wasn't until I was into my second, third year on the streets that people started taking me seriously. You know, they paid you lip service. Oh, yes, we can help you here and help you there. But uh, to put you in a boarding house where you've got four people in one room is just not acceptable under any circumstances. And this is what I had to endure. That there was a chronic shortage of any type of service to be able to help you. I felt like I was more and more disenfranchised and disassociated from the community and I found myself delving into drugs and other things to try and combat my anxieties and um, just my sense of hopelessness and just the utter rejection that I kept on facing all the time. I have a genetic condition as well and as well as uh, my PTSD plus also when you are basically having to watch your back every second because you just don't know who's going to rob you it gets very difficult. John, could you describe how someone could have a government debt, it could be a Centrelink debt, other sort of forms of debt that will stop them from being able to apply for government and community housing? Um, If they've been in uh, government housing before and there's been some damage done to the home, bond scheme, that is inclusive. Anything that's to do with uh, Centrelink debts, because it's an automated system, even if you do manage to get an application in, you're going to be jumped over until that debt's paid off and every last cent has to be paid off before they will consider you for housing. And you've had a personal experience where you had moved out of a, a house for over a year and somebody was squatting there and because you were the last person that was actually on the lease, you actually obtained a debt. Yes, I did. Even though I was able to argue it down, I still owed the government a debt for past rent. Now, that debt was around about $3,000, and there was no way in the world that I was going to be able to pay that $3,000 off. So even if you were put on a, a payment scheme, like a fortnightly amount to pay off that debt, you're not allowed to go onto a, a government housing list until that's completely that clear? Correct. Until that debt is cleared, you are not allowed to have government housing. And how did you think that you incurred that $3,000? That was arrears of rent because under the government guidelines, if they cannot contact you for three months, they uh, must start eviction process against you. The eviction process has taken what, about four or five months, so I incurred about five months' worth back rent, and they still hold that over me. This is a debt from nearly 17 years ago. And this was after you'd well moved out? Yes. Well, I was living in Melbourne at the time and I could prove it. But they would not list the debt so I couldn't go to VCAT and argue my case to um, have it knocked on the head. You know, VCAT could have ruled in my favour. 
and said, well, no, this is not right. But because they would not list the debt, it is forever there, just hanging there, waiting. You know, I mean, every time I go and try to get a government loan or even a, uh, a grant, I'm automatically turned away and there's nothing I can do about it. Until that debt's paid off, you do not get housing. And have you been able to access any advice through a social worker or any organisation around approaching VCAT with that? Yes, I did. And uh, the agency that I was going through, I became too difficult to deal with and um, they just bailed on me. And this was after I'd been told by the worker, oh, we won't let you down, you can trust us. And this seems to be a widespread problem that they lull you into a false sense of security and you actually believe what they're saying to you, but the second that you, it becomes inconvenient for them, they just bailed on me. Very frustrating. Did they say to you like how you became inconvenient or difficult? Because I was costing them too much money. Taking up a lot of time and hours? Yeah, their, their resources. John, just describing some of the issues homeless people face with getting onto Centrelink if they don't have an address. Centrelink tries to do as much as it possibly can, but because Centrelink and the members, you know, the actual people, are being reduced, uh, it's becoming more of an automated system, and this is how they're getting around it. Because the automated system does not have any feelings, uh, we can't help you or you are only entitled to this. I mean, the number one thing that the actual government could do is to help unemployed people, especially, is to raise the bare minimum amount of money. There has not been a raise in 22 years, I believe, or 19 years, in the unemployment rate. The new start payment? Uh, uh, yes. I mean, even the ordinary pensions are CPI indexed. And I mean, at the very least, unemployment should be indexed to the CPI. Also, too, with the removal of the workers, a lot of people finding that street people are not tech-savvy. They don't know how to operate computers. They don't have access to computers most of the time. You know, or if they do, it's very limited. And the drain on those small resources is absolutely phenomenal. So even just getting onto a computer to log into a MyGov account can be a great issue because a lot of the people don't even have a MyGov account. And you can walk into a Centrelink office, but it can be very, very hard for someone who's not computer savvy to, first of all, just get onto a computer for the first time and then to have to learn all these specific things, like with a MyGov account, you get into MyGov, then you have to link it to your Centrelink account, you have to link it to your Medicare account. That also requires phone calls. It's quite a, a big process, and even the staff in the Centrelink offices, which try to be very helpful, but they sometimes have difficulty with the system themselves. You are very correct, and hence why there's such an issue. Intimidating to anybody that is not familiar with how to go through the proper protocols. And there you create another issue, and that is if a form's not filled in correctly, you find out that, oh, you try and go and access a payment, you can't have it, you have to go back and start all over again with that piece of paperwork because it wasn't done properly on the computer.
Could you give like a specific example of someone who is homeless or is on very low income? I know several people who absolutely, they just live off the street. They just refuse to have anything to do with the government. They've got no faith or trust in the government and its system. They beg on the street. We, Frankston Australian Unemployed Workers Union, try and outreach to these people, hand out our booklets on the rights and responsibilities of job providers and contact numbers for people to be able to get fair representation. We do a little bit of street work. As you're well aware, knowledge is empowerment and a lot of people are not given the correct knowledge so that they can actually access the right services that they need to help them through their circumstances. And it's very hard to get through to them that, yes, they have rights and the government has responsibilities. But we've got to empower people to be able to actually be able to do something about their circumstances, and this is not happening. The Frankston sub-branch of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, we can be reached at hashtag Frankston, A-U-W-U. We have a Twitter site as well. We'd like people to actually join because this is a community issue that's a state issue which is a federal issue and in solidarity. In other words, if we all stand, maybe people in power will finally pay attention. Glenn Todd is uh, going to be on the line, I think, right now. Um, so Glenn is um, someone who has been involved in building websites for activists, being involved in um, running communications and helping set up uh, activist support networks through um, Ad Actions. Um, he does training to assist people with... Um, building websites and maintaining an online presence and security. And we wanted to get Glenn on the line today to talk about the kind of security measures that as activists and, you know, for anyone as well, that we should be taking when we are organizing online and we are using online um, presence. So Glenn, thanks a lot for coming on the line today. Good morning, James. I'm well. Um, yeah. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, yeah, I wonder if you could... I was thinking we could have a bit of a chat about some of the measures that people could take and um, perhaps kind of take a step through some of that process that people might find a bit overwhelming to kind of get their head around. Yeah, I think um, technology's changed a lot in the last couple of years and it's become a lot more easier. And uh, it's also important for people just to change their behaviour in everyday uh, interactions. Um for example, using Facebook is something a lot of people do. But when you install that app on your phone, you're giving it lots of really dodgy permissions like access to your calls, access to your messages, access to lots of bits and pieces. Um, so it's really important just to uh, uninstall that app and never use it, and that goes for the Messenger app. And Facebook's really dodgy. They try and force you to install that Messenger app to do your messages. So what you can do is in your browser, you can access Facebook, but you can also type in mbasic.facebook.com to access your messages. 
And so how is so how is it different to when you're using Messenger or the app? How is that um, different to using the site? Like how are they getting more access to your data in that way? Well, browsers have got a lot of um, security wrapped around them because, you know, you go to dodgy websites and they're trying to do this and that. So they've, they're like a very secure environment, whereas the app is um, designed to work on your phone and access various things. Obviously, if you're making phone calls, the phone app can access your phone and your history and all those things. So when you install the Facebook app, you're actually giving it permission. So you could either read that fine print or if you're a little bit more um, time efficient, you may actually then go to search engine and search for this exact issue and have a look for yourself and actually have a look at what Facebook can access that those apps. If you if you actually do that, you probably you will you will uninstall it. And I think one of the barriers, I think a lot of the time that having these kind of conversations with people and people can, you know, understand what is being said about how this might be affecting their security or um yeah, or their information and things like that. But it's, I guess it's taking that step and people making that extra time or, you know, or money in an, another way, like, you know, installing VPN and things like that. So how, I guess how do we break down that kind of stigma around that to make people make that change? Um, that, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, how do you get people to care about the sleazy state um, and potentially sinister state spying on you? Um, and the other thing is if you are actually organising, um, do you really, you know, you want to actually protect what you're doing? And then there's also historically, um, you know, ASIO was in the 70s spying on students um, and that involved students, you know, having a kiss and flirting and, and, and quite sleazy stuff. So, you know, I'm sure most people agree they just don't want sleazy people and a sleazy historical uh, organisation spying on your stuff. I think maybe the difficulty as well, though, is that we can't, we don't physically see that impact. And, you know, I guess in organizing, you always, there's a joke around, there's probably one of the five people in the room is an ASIO spy or whatever, but we don't need to, um, we're not necessarily in that room anymore. A lot of the organizing is happening online. And, you know, I guess there's partly a thing that we, are always we assume that someone's always listening but then on the other hand we we don't necessarily see the impact of that and so it's harder to make that kind of change yeah i mean you know for uh you know people don't see their meat being slaughtered yet there's still people who become vegans um and the other thing as far as the surveillance is always about cost you know you think about the cost of putting an actual physical person as a spy there's a huge cost um, digital is extremely cheap. I mean, the intelligence community access to Facebook is virtually free, and then the the huge infrastructure at scale is so cheap. It's it's you know they're just default doing it to everyone. It's just so cheap. Um, so what we by taking certain measures, you just make it very expensive. And yes, they can spy on you, but then it comes back to old-fashioned policing, which is you know they go to get a warrant or they've got to justify the cost and then do an investigation. So sure, if someone's doing something really dodgy, then maybe there's an investigation. Um, but what's happening now is just blanket surveillance on everybody because it's just so cheap. And there's a couple of apps that people can use, like uh, Signal and WhatsApp. And what um, is that something you would recommend that people should be switching over to? 
Yeah, definitely. So um, stop using your phone and your uh, messenger if possible with your friends and especially if you're organising. So Signal is a great um, application for encrypted voice-to-voice. And encryption is just fancy mathematics that basically puts a lock on your security, on your communications. Um, so yeah, Signal is great for texting and it's great for voice. Um, with email, encrypting email is really complex. So we've started using ProtonMail. So if you've got two friends with Proton emails, it's encrypted end-to-end. So it's a really easy one. Um, we've been using uh, a tool called Matrix Riot for um, our group chats. So you know how a lot of activist groups tend to chat on Facebook groups? Yeah, definitely stop doing that. Um, so Matrix Riot's a good um, alternative. It is a, a little bit of a learning curve, um, but then you've also got an encrypted chat and I guess, you know, yeah, I think we will um, post some information over the day about how people can access some of these things as well. And I think in terms of encrypting your, you know, your phone or your computer or whatever devices you're using, um, what kind of things would you recommend for that? Uh, well, to encrypt your phone itself, and I, I do recommend that you encrypt your phone and also your laptop, that's, those tools are built in, so you've just got to go into the settings. Um, and that's really important because if your phone gets confiscated, that means that they need a very high-end forensic expert to crack that phone, uh, and that's highly unlikely. And again, that just increases the cost substantially. So up in Queensland, we're finding with the Adani protest is the cops are just confiscating all the phones. Mainly it's just annoying for people, but then they're probably forensically analysing those. So where, where, if that happened to you, it's not just you that's going to then be exposed to that investigation. It's all your friends, all the emails, all the chats, everything that's been um, on that phone. So encryption is actually a really efficient way. And the uh, FBI last year did a big complaint to Congress saying that it was hindering their investigations quite substantially. There was 8,000 phones that were critical into investigations that they couldn't crack. And um, I think, yeah, I guess, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up in a moment, but I'd love to have you come on again, Glenn. And I think if people want to find out more around the kind of work that you do, or they'd like to have assistance in any of the either security things or help with a website or even um, skills themselves to do these kind of things, they can go to the actionskills.org website or, yep. um, or are there other places that... You should, we should yep. direct people to? Yep. So if you go to actionskills.org, there's um, a resources page, and we've got links to more websites, but we've also got two guides that were written late last year, and they've been refined uh, on the ground with Frontline Action on Coal. So we've actually been using those processes and tools and refining them. Um, so you'll be able to see the sort of systems that we're using and actually on the ground in, in an actual direct action context. Um, if you wanted a workshop and you're willing to organise it, then contact me through that website and I'd be, um, I'm happy to do workshops. I'm just struggling organising them at the moment. So, yeah, if you'd like to organise something, then contact me. Okay. Thanks a lot, Glenn, for joining us and I um, hope to hear from you again. Good luck with all your work. Yeah, have a good, good morning. Tune into Urban Voices, this new thing. 3 till 4pm, Mondays. CR. Tune in to 8.55am because this is the new thing. Urban. Soul. Electronic. It's all about a music that's playing around from Australia to around the world.
Urban Voices, Mondays, 3pm on 3CR. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Next up, we're going to be listening to audio from last Sunday's protest against the planned deportation of Tamil asylum seeker Sansa Rupan. My name's Umesh. I've been working with the Tamil Refugee Council um, to try and help uh, Sansa Rupan um, get, uh, get his case recognised, get uh, refugee protection, and now we are hoping to stop his deportation uh, next week. From Broadmeadows. Okay. So, can you tell us uh, what kind of, if you have an idea of what kind of conditions he might face um, if Santa Ruben gets sent yeah. back? Well, so it's still a crime to uh, seek asylum, leave the country by boat to seek asylum. Uh, so, you'll be uh, arrested, investigated by the Criminal Investigation Department, I think. Um, previous asylum seekers, failed asylum seekers who have been sent back from Australia have rep- uh, there have been reports that they've been uh, tortured um, and they're going to face surveillance and harassment um, and in the worst case p- potentially disappearance in, uh... So it seems like all of the Australian sort of domestic courts options to stop this deportation have been exhausted and so we're now going to the UN for the, the UN uh, Committee Against Torture Committee Against Torture um, Sort of, do you do you have any understa- um, understanding of how they might rule in terms of stopping his um, his deportation and what their what their general uh, approach is to people who are fleeing Sri Lanka because of violence? Um, yeah, so I haven't I haven't like looked extensively at all the cases they've um, made decisions on. Like you can go online and yeah. and read them. Um, but so the Australian government signed up to this Convention Against Torture. And one of the commitments was they won't send people back to places of torture. Um, and so under this convention, one of the last options, if you've exhausted all your domestic options, is you can appeal to this UN committee against torture. And so in this case, that was done. And the UN thought there were uh, enough um, grounds to look into it. And so they're currently uh, pending a decision whether or not they think he shouldn't be uh, deported. So they, they issued a, a, what's called interim measures not to deport Santa Ruben back to the government of Sri Lanka. But despite that, the Australian government has uh, issued this removal notice and they're going to deport him next week. Well, they're intending to deport him next week and we're trying to stop that. Free, free the refugees! Free, free the refugees! Free, free the refugees! My name is Iswaran and I arrived here in 84 and I came here as a refugee when Mr. Bob Hawke was Prime Minister. And uh, because of the atrocities of the Sri Lankan uh, government-sponsored terrorism it was, uh, I lost my house which was burnt, I lost my surgery which was burnt and we were nearly murdered. But thanks to the efforts of Mr. Hawke at that time, they were, the Australian government agreed to take in 1,000 families, I think, or 1,000 people as refugees. And, and I turned up at the Australian High Commission. The first thing the High Commissioner wanted was, when do you want to go to Australia and which city do you want to Australia? So that was the state of affairs at that stage. But things seem to have soured a lot nowadays, and uh, nowadays they seem to have more refugees, right? A refugee is a refugee.
So my name is Charlotte and I'm with uh, Whistleblowers Activists and Citizens Alliance um, and the reason I'm here today is because uh, Tamil refugee Santha Rupan um, has been told that he will be deported on the 22nd of February um, and from my perspective um, de- deportations equal death and deportations um, equal torture for a lot of people and we've seen it happen you know over the past 10 years of people as people have been deported they've been um, especially Tamil asylum seekers they've been met at Colombo airport in Sri Lanka and um, whisked away by the police before they even had a chance to meet their family so there's no there's no doubt that this man is in danger and um, I'm here today to take a stand against um, cruel border policy. So there's no um, set t- date for the UN Committee um, Against Torture hearing, but um, I've heard that there's going to be a, um, an action here in front of the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation at, on Wednesday. Can you tell us about Yeah. So on Wednesday at 6am we're going to be meeting here um, in front of um, MITRE in Broadbenos and we invite everybody who um, has the energy to get up that early and who cares about refugee rights to come out and um, take a stand because Santharupan has been um, notified that he'll be deported at that time and um, if people sh- show up in in huge numbers that you know we are more powerful than our um, violent government and it's so important that we take a stand because these deportations have been stopped in the past um, he just needs you know an extension of time until the um, the UN can you know review his case so um, if that means I'm coming out here every, you know, staying overnight and stuff we've done in the past and we'll do it again. Perfect. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks. You have been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Thanks so much for your company. Up next on 3CR, stay tuned for Women on the Line. And we'll all be back next week to talk to you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.